Hello and welcome to Health Fact versus Fiction, brought to you by HCA Healthcare UK. I'm Anna Richardson and this is the podcast where we uncover the truths and bust the myths about your health with some of the country's leading consultants. not off, but this episode is all about sleep. Roughly a third of adults in the UK report symptoms of poor sleep, with about one in 10 of those suffering with chronic insomnia. But even if you don't have a sleep disorder, busy lives often prevent us from getting the amount of sleep we feel we need. So in this episode, we're going to learn about what you can do to get yourself a good night's sleep and also what makes for a quality night's sleep. With me throughout the podcast is Dr Guy Leschziner. Guy is a consultant neurologist and reader in neurology at HCA Healthcare UK's London Bridge Hospital. He's also the author of a new book called The Nocturnal Brain, which has the subtitle, and I love this, Nightmares, Neuroscience and the Secret World of Sleep. Guy, hello, welcome. Hi, Anna. Can I just say, I'm absolutely obsessed with sleep. I imagine that everybody says this to you, but I am obsessed with sleep. So I'm really looking forward to this episode. And just to let you know, I sleep really, really well. Well, you're in a minority then. I know, I'm amazing. I am amazing. But it has been noted that I can sleep for a good 12 to 14 hours a night. Don't know if that's normal. That in itself may be abnormal. Aha! To be discussed, to be discussed. But first of all, we like to start each episode by busting some myths. So can you tell me if the following statements are health fact or health fiction. It's a little bit like University Challenge this. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Is it possible, Guy, to be both awake and in a deep sleep at the same time? Well, that's fact. We know that there are a number of situations in which actually the brain can be awake and asleep at the same time. No. Absolutely. The brain does not necessarily stay in the same state of sleep in its entirety. Okay, moving on to the next question. Night shift workers have a higher risk of cancer than people who work daytime hours. Is that true? I think that's probably fact as well. And that's been backed up by bodies like the World Health Organization as well. Interesting. Okay. If you have insomnia, it goes without saying, obviously, that you're sleep deprived. So that's believe it or not, fiction, because we know that insomnia does not always equate to sleep deprivation. There are many people who feel that they have very poor sleep or have slept very little, but whereas actually if you record them in a sleep laboratory, their sleep is often normal in terms of sleep duration. So there's a huge range of conditions that are described as insomnia and they don't necessarily equate to sleep deprivation. Okay, I'm going to press you on this later on because my other half uh, is convinced that she's an insomniac, but I think she sleeps a good nine hours a night. Mm -hmm. So we'll get into those answers more very shortly. But first of all, I want to start by asking you, why do we need to sleep? So how long have we got? I think we've only got 30 minutes or so, haven't we? I think that's a very, very long answer. Okay. We we understand that sleep is is fundamental to life. Um it's, and particularly in humans, it seems to be fundamental to our physical health, fundamental to our neurological health, and regulation of the brain, I think, is increasingly seen to be a very important function of sleep, but it's also important for our psychological health. 
What we think happens in sleep is that there are a variety of processes. So sleep is not one entity. There are lots of different stages of sleep and people sleep in different ways. Can you just explain to us what the different stages of sleep are? We typically, as adults, drift off to sleep. We start off in very light, non-REM sleep. And then over the course of the first half hour or so, we end up in very deep stage three sleep. And then over the rest of the night, we tend to cycle in and out between non-REM and REM sleep, with more of the REM sleep occurring in the latter half of the night. And actually, most of our deep sleep, our deep non-REM sleep occurring in the first half of the night. And we tend to cycle four or five times over the course of a night. And do, do you know why? Why would we cycle like that? So one of the theories is that in dreaming sleep, uh, and this is a really fascinating fact, is that in dreaming sleep, we lose the ability to regulate our own body temperature. And so we are at risk of becoming hypothermic, or if we're in a very hot environment, becoming hyperthermic, which either of which are really quite dangerous. So when, for example, I go on to in the intensive care unit, I'll often see patients who are hypothermic or have taken drugs that have resulted in their temperature going up. And that's a from a from a physical perspective is potentially incredibly dangerous. It's dangerous to all the metabolic functions in our bodies. So it would make sense that actually to spend too long in dreaming sleep is actually really very hazardous. And it also raises the issue as to why evolution has allowed us to enter into this state whereby we can no longer control our body temperature. So one of the theories as to why we cycle in and out of dreaming sleep is because if we were to spend too long in it, then we'd we die. Could, yes. Gosh, that's extraordinary, isn't it? So what exactly happens to our bodies when we're sleeping? So we know that in deep sleep, everything tends to settle down. From a neurological perspective, we know that there are channels in the brain that actually drain fluid. So they're responsible for removing toxins or metabolites. So these are chemical substances that build up as a result of being very active that are flushed out of the brain. And I think that that's where the view has come from that sleep may be responsible for cleansing the brain of damaging substances that may predispose to Alzheimer's disease. So there's now a, a growing body of literature surrounding the association between sleep and sleep deprivation and conditions like Alzheimer's disease. Whereas in REM sleep, actually, if you look at the brain electrically, it's incredibly active. It looks like it's awake. It's almost as if we are, we are awake, but we are offline. So we are isolated from the external world around us and we're attending to our internal world. You see, I find this extraordinary. Why do we dream? What we think that dreaming is important for is a number of things. For example, processing memories and trying to cleanse them of the emotional content, which is why, for example, people with post-traumatic stress disorder often exhibit the same dream again and again. And it's when that dream is not completed that they don't overcome the emotional context for what has triggered that dream. But we also think that dreaming has important functions in terms of consolidating memories, in terms of pruning some of the synapses, some of the connections between various neurons, because during the day, what we're doing is constantly creating new connections mm. as a result of the experiences that we're having, as a result of the memories that are being deposited. But lots of connections are made that actually are not that useful. And so we think that the process of dreaming actually represents pruning of some of those connections. So a clearing out of, of, of the useless connections yes. that, that we've made during the day. So 
In terms of poor sleep, and so many of us talk about not sleeping well, yes. if you don't sleep well, how does that affect you physically and, of course, mentally? Well, I think that comes back to what we were saying about insomnia, in that insomnia is not one entity. So we know that some people clearly have terrible insomnia whereby they result in being very sleep-deprived. But other people actually spend quite a long time in bed, but they feel that the quality of their sleep is not great. And a lot of people in that situation are actually, when their sleep is recorded, are actually exhibiting normal durations of sleep in particular. The other situation that we often see is people who say, well, actually, I haven't slept at all. And you, when you bring them into the sleep lab, they actually sleep incredibly well. There are a couple of brief awakenings. Have you met Sue Perkins? Uh, I've not yet, yeah. My, my other half, Sue... This is exactly what she does. Yeah. So she every morning she will go, oh, I'm exhausted. I didn't sleep a wink. I've had a terrible night's sleep. And I'm there thinking, really? Because I was sleeping next to you and you had a good nine hours, literally without moving. Yeah. So you're, you're saying that some people have this narrative where they think they haven't slept at all. What's that all about? I think the answer is we don't know. I think in some individuals what we see is little spikes of wakefulness throughout the night and the brain then fills in those periods between those little periods of wakefulness as having been awake rather than having been asleep and that's called sleep state misperception or paradoxical insomnia. But we also see, for example, in conditions like ME that people exhibit abnormal brain activity. So in addition to the brain traces demonstrating them to be in deep sleep, there are also some additional signals that suggest that their brain is not quite in as deep sleep as it otherwise should be. So we see something called alpha activity on the brain waves, which is a feature of wakefulness. So there may be something about the quality of their sleep that means it's unrefreshing. That ultimately what it comes down to is that the tools that we use to study sleep, the EEG, which is where we stick electrodes on people's scalp, tell us what's happening on the surface of the brain don't really tell us what's happening deep down in the brain. I have read, Guy, that uh, cognitive behavioural therapy, CBT, yeah. is very helpful when it comes to treating people with some kind of sleep disorder. Yeah. Why is that? What, what can it teach us to do? So in the olden days, people who had insomnia or some problem with the perception of their sleep, particularly individuals who had difficulty getting off to sleep, were often prescribed sleeping tablets mm. in, in huge amounts. And that's created all sorts of problems. People having a dependency and addiction to these drugs. Uh, people develop a tolerance to these drugs, so they often require ever-increasing mm. doses to get the same result. What we've learned in recent years is that actually what the fundamental issue is for most people with insomnia is that they have a poor association between bed and sleep. So for most people, people like you, for example, who's very lucky... Um, when you get into bed on a conscious, on a subconscious level, you associate bed with drifting off to sleep, that warmth under the duvet, the nice, relaxing environment. Oh, and, 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 you know, in many ways, we're nothing more glorified than Pavlov's dogs. Do you know the story of Pavlov's dogs? Of course, so, yeah. so, so Pavlov, the Russian neuroscientist who rang a bell and taught his dogs that when he rang the bell, they would be presented with food and then started salivating as soon as the bell rang. We have that conditioned response to bed. But for people who have insomnia, their bed is an instrument of torture. I so see. They, so it's, it's they, actually anxiety-making. Yes, they, they, they associate either on a conscious level, in which case they're very aware of the fact that when they get into bed, they get this rising sense of anxiety or dread, 
or on a subconscious level, a conditioned response, they associate being in bed with having difficulty getting off to sleep. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, really. So what cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia does is really tries to break down those negative associations with bed and try and rebuild positive associations. And we know that actually, for the vast majority of people, cognitive behavioural therapy is a very good technique to try and re-establish those associations and to re-establish normal sleep patterns. It doesn't work for everyone, but it certainly would be the default option, the first option in trying to treat some of the common sleep issues that people experience. So it's changing the way you think in order to change the emotion behind it. Yes, and also to change some of your habits surrounding sleep as well. What if you have the opposite of insomnia. What if you sleep too much? So the reason this is very much yeah. a personal question for me yeah. because I can sleep for Britain. I love going to bed. If mm. I could sleep all day every day, I would. Uh, I get a good twelve hours a night, yeah. and I delight in sleeping. And mm. I get, in fact, I'm, I'm more interested. I'm, I'm sort of happier asleep mm. than awake mm. because I really enjoy going into a dream state as mm. well. But can you become addicted to sleep? I don't think you can become addicted to sleep because normally the brain, when given the opportunity to sleep, will sleep as much as it needs. And I think it's really important to stress that this concept of seven to eight hours being a normal amount of sleep is a little bit fallacious. So the, the people often ask me, what is a, a normal amount of sleep? How much sleep should I be getting? And the answer is really, you should be getting the amount of sleep that you need in order to be able to doze off at night when you want to, to wake up at a regular time, to feel refreshed during the day and then feel ready to go to sleep again the following night. And there's huge variation. So we know that genetics is a very important factor. Um, at the extremes, I have patients who have families in which they only need four or five hours sleep Gosh. and they don't have any overt manifestations. And some people need longer sleep. But if you're sleeping a lot on a regular basis then it raises the possibility, and it only raises the possibility, that you may have something else going on with your sleep, whether that be conditions like sleep apnea, which is recurrent obstruction of the airway, resulting in choking and partial awakenings throughout the night, whether that be a condition that is related to restless leg syndrome, which is a neurological disorder that results in uh, recurrent kicking at night called periodic limb movement disorder, or for some people, they have a condition called idiopathic hypersomnia, which is a very rare condition akin to a neurological disorder like narcolepsy, where people need a very, very long sleep time. And regardless of how long they sleep, they're still very sleepy during the day. Now, it doesn't sound like you're doing that. It sounds like you wake up feeling pretty refreshed. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just I think that my entire life, I mean, my mother says that when I was a baby, I just slept. Yeah. And I think my entire life, I just enjoy masses of sleep. Well, if you bottled that, you'd make a fortune. I know, we should try. Mm. There's, there's, there's definitely a business idea going on here, Guy. Let's talk about body clocks mm. and how important that is for our sleeping patterns. Because mm. I think, as you've alluded to, some people need more sleep than others. Some people go to bed earlier than other people. Mm. What is our circadian rhythm and why is it important to stick to that? So every single cell in our bodies has an internal body clock. And if we look at the way that genes are processed in our cells, they undergo a 24-hour rhythm. But many of the 
coordinating factors between our various organs, and in particular between our brain and our bodies, is influenced by a very small nub of tissue in, deep in the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and that's termed the master clock. It really defines many neurological and many physiological processes that go on in our bodies and in terms of their relationship to the outside world. So we know that that internal body clock is defined by genetics, so that some people tend to be morning larks and evening owls, and that trait is often inherited in, in families. But we also know that our internal body clock is influenced by external factors, particularly things like bright light, because there are direct connections between certain cells in the back of our eyes, the retinas, and this area in the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. So if people are exposed to very bright light in the evenings, that can shift their body clock back. If they're exposed to bright lights in the mornings, then that can shift their body clock forward. And then there are other factors at play, like melatonin. So melatonin is a hormone that is a chemical signal to the brain. It's actually produced by the brain that tells the brain it's time to sleep, but it also has some effects on other areas of our bodies. There are melatonin receptors throughout our bodies. And if we take melatonin in tablet form, that can also shift our body clock back and forward. Equally, things like exercise, like time of eating, like uh, mental exercise, can influence our body clock. So, so even though your body clock is set genetically, yes. you can, to a certain extent... Uh, manipulate it or shift it? You, you, you can, and uh, we often see that, for example, in teenagers. So uh, our body clock tends to shift anyway as we go through life. So in teenagehood, the body clock is delayed, which is why teenagers, and my daughter is now starting to exhibit this, of trying to drag her out of bed in the morning and wanting to go to bed very late. And then as we get older, our body clock shifts forward, which is why as people get older, they often tend to go to bed a lot earlier and wake up earlier. But one of the issues that we think is compounding this shift, particularly in teenagehood now, is the exposure to bright light in the evenings. You know, kids using mobile phones or tablets at night before they go to bed. And that probably is exacerbating matters significantly. So if your body clock is out of whack due to um, jet lag or maybe shift work, yeah. can that have a very negative effect on your health? Well, first of all, having trying to sleep at a point in which your body clock is trying to tell you that you should be awake, makes sleep very difficult. And if you're trying to juggle the requirements of life with your own internal body clock, then that can result in you having poor quality sleep and also to be sleep deprived. So we often see individuals in the sleep clinic who have a body clock that is really out of sync with the rest of society and they're trying to juggle work or school with the times that their brain is telling them to go off to sleep and they're often very sleep deprived and sleep deprivation in itself has negative consequences on our health in terms of blood pressure, in terms of diabetes, in terms of a range of other physiological parameters. Let's talk about a condition uh, that is quite often the butt of the joke mm. but actually for people suffering with it, it really is not funny at all and I'm talking about parasomnia. Yeah. Or sleepwalking. Now, in your book, and this is extra, I couldn't believe it when I read this, you talk about a patient who rode a motorbike mm. and drove her car while she was sleeping. 
and also one woman who was taking bubble baths yes. while she was sleeping. This is extraordinary. How how can this be? How can you be? It's what we were talking about earlier on. How can you be asleep, but also awake? It seems. Well, I think this goes back to what we started with, which is that the brain can be in different stages of sleep or indeed wake at the same time. And we see individuals performing really quite complicated stuff in very deep sleep. So at the extremes, there have been cases of people who have driven 20 miles, got out of their car, murdered somebody, and then managed to end up back in bed that have subsequently been found to be sleepwalking. Whether or not that's responsible for their uh, supposed crime is a matter for the courts to decide, but certainly we see people doing extraordinary things, cooking, driving or riding a motorbike, as you've mentioned, walking outside their house, walking several miles, eating, having sex in their sleep. And what we think is going on in these individuals, and in a few individuals, actually, they have exhibited these kinds of behaviours whilst being in a scanner, for example. What we can clearly see is that there are certain parts of the brain that remain in very deep sleep. And typically, those parts of the brain are the frontal lobes, which is the seat of our reasoning, our, our rational being, our decision-making. But the areas that are wide awake are areas that are responsible for movement or for vision or for emotion. Now, we used to think of these conditions as being associated with complete amnesia, of people not being able to remember anything. But actually, we know that some people do remember certain snippets of these behaviours. And what we think is responsible for that is that the area of the brain that's often responsible for storing these memories, the hippocampus, is typically in deep sleep, but occasionally we see that actually that's not the case and they exhibit more waking behaviour. So sleepwalking is a great example of different parts of the brain being awake and asleep at the same time. It's absolutely extraordinary to have that, that dichotomy physiologically. So how on earth do you treat something like that? Because you really don't want to have somebody driving their car down the M1 yeah. while they're asleep. So we think that there are really two issues in people who do that. The first is that either their deep sleep is so deep that what would normally wake somebody up doesn't wake them up in their entirety. And if that's the case, then what you need to try and do is either prevent whatever it is that's waking them up. So conditions like sleep apnea, periodic limb movement disorder, occasionally we see people who are partially woken by their bed creaking when their bed partner rolls over in bed or if they're sleeping under the Heathrow flight path exhibiting these kinds of behaviours when a plane flies overhead because what would probably wake up their bed partner doesn't fully wake them up and that's when they exhibit behaviours. But the other possibility is that actually their sleep is a little bit less deep than normal so that people who uh, in whom these kinds of phenomena wouldn't normally wake them up out of deep sleep partially cause them to awake. And in those kinds of situations, it's trying to deepen their sleep or keep them in a bit more stable sleep using techniques like cognitive behavioural mm. therapy mm -hmm. or occasionally drugs as well. Guy, do you snore? No, I know that for a fact because I did a research study recently and uh, I don't have sleep apnea, I don't snore. Oh, well, you lucky thing. So I can sleep for Britain, you don't yeah. snore, so we're both winners in this. Does your wife snore? No. Really? But I have insomnia, so I'm kind of... Uh, oh, you're just I'm telling yourself. You're telling yourself area. you've got insomnia. Now, I snore really badly, mm. and this is becoming a problem. 
pursue, she tells me, that it's a nightmare. How common is snoring? And more importantly, is it harmless? So snoring is incredibly common. It's almost a a fact of life, particularly as we get older. Um, Snoring in itself is, is probably not a big issue at all. But we know that snoring sits at one end of a spectrum of a group of conditions that we call sleep-disordered breathing. So the snoring becomes an issue when it's really impacting on your ability to breathe at night. So at the milder end of the spectrum, if you're waking yourself up due to snoring, then obviously that's a bit of an issue. Mm. Sometimes the noise of snoring can actually wake you up. But actually at the other end of the spectrum is a condition called sleep apnea Mm -hmm. because Snoring is as a result of turbulence in the airway, usually due to a slightly narrowed airway, causing reverberation of the tissues at the back of the throat. But if your airway is very narrowed or very floppy, that airway can actually collapse down completely in sleep and cause obstruction of the airway. And so people who exhibit this condition called sleep apnea, they snore, but that snoring tends to get louder and louder as the airway narrows and people go into deeper sleep and then the airway collapses down, they obstruct their oxygen levels drop, their heart rate increases, and the brain says, oh, hang on a minute, I'm being suffocated, and then partially wakes up. And as you partially wake up, the tone, the airway becomes less floppy, it opens up again. But that cycle can continue sometimes, you know, up to 100 times an hour we see occasionally in in the sleep laboratory. And that has really major implications on our health. Mm. First of all, it makes us very, very sleepy during the day because if you imagine that your sleep is being disrupted 100 times an hour throughout the night, then that is going to have major implications on the quality of your sleep. So it leaves you at risk of, you know, a two- to three-fold increased risk of car accidents, for example. So it's the sleepiness itself that can be harmful to you. But we're now starting to appreciate that sleep apnea is associated with a range of other conditions like, for example, diabetes, like high blood pressure, increased risk of stroke, increased risk of heart disease. And so at that end of the spectrum, it clearly is no joke. It really is potentially a rather serious condition. Well, nearly 4 million people in the UK suffer with sleep apnea. But my question is, how would you know that you are a sleep apneic? So I think that there are a number of features that can suggest that you've got sleep apnea. The first is what your bed partner reports. So if your bed partner tells you that you are snoring very loudly but occasionally pausing for breath in your sleep, then that's an important clue. If you wake up feeling unrefreshed with a headache, with a sore throat or a dry mouth, or you're excessively sleepy during the day, then that's an important clue that actually your sleep is not right. And the other thing that people with sleep apnea often experience is that they have to get up a lot at night to pass urine because we know that the changes in pressure inside our thorax related to sleep apnea cause alterations in levels of certain hormones that influence how much urine we're producing at night. But I guess the most important indication for you to go and see somebody about your sleep is if you're dropping off in situations where you're not deliberately wanting to doze Mm. off in. So if you're getting enough sleep, and by enough sleep, seven or eight hours is a reasonable rule of thumb, as I've already stressed, it's not the be-all and end-all, but you're falling asleep in meetings, you're falling asleep very easily as a passenger in a car, Um, you're falling asleep when sitting quietly reading or watching television, particularly if it's not late at night, 
I think these are all important indications that perhaps there is an issue with your sleep that you need to address. And potentially it's sleep apnea. Potentially sleep apnea because it's potentially the commonest health condition that influences your sleep in that way. Crucially then, what can be done about it? If you do think that you might be suffering with sleep apnea, what on earth can be done? So if your bed partner reports that you're only really snoring on your back, then obviously a very simple thing to do would be to try and avoid sleeping on your back. And there are a number of devices that you can use to keep you off your back, even, you know, the old wives' tale of of stitching a tennis ball into the back of an old T-shirt. Often sleep apnea is associated with weight gain because when you carry a bit of excess weight particularly on your throat, um, and also within the muscles that keep the airway open, then that gives rise to sleep apnea, so weight loss can help. And then if you really have clinical sleep apnea and you require treatment, there are a number of different things that we can do. The first thing is something called a mandibular advancement device, which is a gum shield that you wear at night that pushes your lower jaw forward and creates a bit more space at the back of your throat. Surgery is an option for very selected individuals who clearly have a problem with the anatomy of their airway. And the gold standard is a treatment called CPAP or APAP, which is a mask that people wear at night that delivers pressurised air while we sleep and that keeps the airway open. Now, interestingly, Steve, our our producer, was saying to me earlier on that that he has a friend who has this mask to keep the airway open. Mm. How disruptive Is that? Can you actually sleep with such a thing on your face? So if people have got very severe sleep apnea, they tend to be incredibly sleepy. Right. And they tend to get used to that mask very, very quickly. And if you've got very bad sleep apnea, then this mask can be a life-changing intervention. So people can go from being completely zonked all day, every day, to actually feeling completely refreshed. And so that's a very good incentive to carry on using it. There are, of course, some people who can't tolerate it at all and see it as an instrument of torture. So, assuming that most people listening to this will have will be reasonable sleepers, maybe mm. they have a little bit of insomnia or difficulty getting to sleep, if I were to say to you, what are your top three tips for good sleep hygiene and sleep health, yeah. what would you say? I think the first thing is to value your sleep, to see it as an important aspect of your life. What we've tended to do is seen it very much as a a distraction from our daily lives. It's something that we have to do but don't really want to do it. But actually your attitude, which is to revel in sleep, is actually really healthy to, to appreciate sleep and appreciate how important it is for every aspect of your life. People get very hung up on sleep hygiene. If your sleep is good quality and you go to bed without any difficulties, and you wake up without any difficulties, and you're not lying in for more than an hour a a, a morning at the weekend, then actually what I would stress to people is relax about your sleep. Don't worry about it. I think one of the issues uh, that has been raised by a lot of the stuff that's been in the media in the last few years is to make people really focus on their sleep to an unhealthy degree. And I think that's my major issue with a lot of these sleep trackers. My view is, if you are buying a sleep tracker because you've got an issue with your sleep, you already know that you've got an issue with your sleep. You don't really need a sleep tracker to, you to tell to tr- you that. You don't need to track your, your yeah. negative. And if you're waking up feeling refreshed and you're not feeling tired during the day and you're getting a good night's sleep, then what benefit is a sleep tracker going to give you? So so I think the key thing is to relax about about your sleep, provided you're getting enough and you feel it's good quality to be sensible in terms of your habits surrounding 
sleep, particularly before sleep. So avoiding bright lights, you know, not drinking a lot of caffeine. If you have got issues with your sleep and you know that caffeine is going to influence your ability to drop off to sleep, then stop drinking caffeine at lunchtime because actually it can hang around for quite a long time, particularly if you're drinking quite a lot of it. And generally, if, you ha if you're having difficulties with feeling unrefreshed and you're drinking alcohol, we know that whilst alcohol helps people get off to sleep because it's a depressant of your central nervous system, it actually reduces the quality of your sleep in many, many ways. So it's not a good way of trying to improve your sleep. We've talked about, obviously, drink, avoid alcohol, yeah. avoid caffeine. Yeah. What about foods? So some people say, well try and avoid a large carbohydrate-rich meal because what that might do is result in your uh, glucose levels dropping at night, uh, something called a rebound phenomenon. And when you have a low glucose, that might influence the quality of your sleep. I think the key message is try and understand your body and understand what it is that influences your sleep. And if you can get away with three Big Macs just before bedtime and your sleep is perfect, you don't need to worry. Yeah. I find that listening to a podcast just as I'm getting ready for bed and, yeah. and settling down really sends me to sleep. So I'm hoping that uh, people will pick up on that tip and listen to this as they drift off into a wonderful eight hours of sleep. Dr Guy Leshliner from the London Bridge Hospital, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. You can find more information about sleep in the show notes for this episode. Just visit hcahealthcare.co.uk forward slash podcast. And while you're there, check out the website to find out more about HCA Healthcare UK's world-class award-winning private hospitals, specialist clinics and private GP services across London and Manchester. Health Fact versus Fiction is presented by me, Anna Richardson, and is a Bengo Media production for HCA Healthcare UK.